My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. All right, well, today we'll be examining Psalm 27 together. Uh, Psalm 27. So if you have a Bible or a device that can access the Bible, um, you can go ahead and find that. Um, If not, it's okay. It's going to be on the screens for you as well to follow along. Um, And so if you're taking notes uh, today, the title of today's sermon is The Lord is My Salvation, Learning to Live Under Attack. And here's the main idea of Psalm 27. The Lord is our only refuge and unfailing friend when we come under attack. The Lord is our only refuge and unfailing friend when we come under attack. Now, this is definitely um, a huge shift in gears from what we've been doing, right? So uh, we were in Romans, so we're going from the New Testament to the Old Testament here. We're moving from a letter to a psalm. And so if you remember, the psalms were written as the songbook for Israel. And this is their this is their hymnal, in other words, um, and so what that means is it's not like Paul, okay? Like it, it, a lot of poetic language, a lot of vivid imagery. Um, that's kind of the way that the psalmist wrote because I mean they were musicians, um, and so definitely a big shift from what we've been doing. And I chose to examine this psalm uh, today with you for three reasons. Uh, number one is I think it's nice to have a change of pace a little bit. Um, You know, we've been kind of plowing through the letters in the New Testament. It's nice to have a a little bit of a change. Um, So this is a one-off sermon, one week, gap to fill. So let's do something a little different this week. Um, Secondly, more important than that, um, is that this psalm in particular is very near and dear to my heart. Um, It's it's helped me through some difficult seasons in life and in ministry. Um, And that leads to the third thing, which is that I think this is a perfect message for our church today. You know, just over the last few weeks, um, especially I think growth groups have really helped me to understand um, more about what you guys are walking through every day. Uh, and, and, and knowing that helped me, helped kind of guide me to Psalm 27. Uh, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you today. So Psalm 27, it's a Psalm of David, uh, meaning it was written by David. Uh, we have no idea uh, at what point in his life he wrote this psalm. There are kind of like several episodes in his story. If you read uh, in the Old Testament, kind of the story of David, there are several episodes that could kind of fit uh, the background of this psalm, but we just don't know when he wrote it. Um, that's okay. You're going to see that we don't really need that information to make sense of what David's talking about here. He's pretty clear uh, in helping us to, uh, to, to understand what he's trying to convey in Psalm 27. And here's what we do know. Psalm 27 displays David's patient trust in the Lord in the midst of hardship. I love this psalm. The Lord is our only refuge and unfailing friend when we come under attack. All right, let's, let's read this psalm together. So Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. If you would, let's just pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word which offers us correction when we go astray and encouragement when we need encouragement, God. Thank you for who you are. God, that you are the stronghold, that in your presence we have shelter. I pray that you would help us to see and understand what that means today. And I pray that we would walk out of this place more deeply in love with you, more confident in your goodness, and standing strong even in the midst of struggle. God, thank you for your word. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts to receive it. Amen. Do you ever feel like you're living under attack. Maybe it's a sickness, a wayward loved one, a, a broken relationship, a, a joy-sucking job, a financial struggle, a mental health crisis, a tense work situation, uh, uncertainty about the future, unfulfilled dreams, unwarranted criticism, immeasurable loss. There are all kinds of ways that we can feel like we're living under attack. I could go on and on. And like I said, each and every week, I'm reminded when I pray for each of you in this room individually of the specific things that you guys are walking through every week. And I know that there are some people even in this room who feel something of what David felt when he wrote this psalm. Right? It can sure feel like we're living under attack. And living in this city, that feeling is doubled, right? Like, 
you think it's hard, it's, it's even harder, right? But what will we do when the ways of life just keep crashing against us? What will we do when the storms of struggle just keep raging and never seem to quit? Here, David comes along in Psalm 27, and he offers us some help. Now, Psalm 27 doesn't say, here, let me make your problems go away. Five steps to a happier life. Do these three things, and you won't ever struggle again. Right? That is not what David says in Psalm 27. No, instead, David demonstrates a very important lesson for us. He shows us what it looks like to live under attack. Now, we can pray that God will make our problems disappear, but we have no promise that he will do that in this life. Right? We know, in fact, that the Christian life often brings us suffering. Now, one day, praise God, he will wipe away every tear, he will abolish all sin and struggle, and he will restore creation to what it was intended to be. But until that day comes, we have to live with the reality of a sinful, broken, and messed up world. And the world's brokenness, and this is where I think we can, I can as a pastor when I stand up and, and preach or teach, I can get this idea in my mind that brokenness is just an abstract idea, right? It's a theological concept that the Bible teaches. But the reality is that, that it's a very imminent part of our life. That brokenness touches every one of us in this room in a myriad of ways, right? It's real. We feel it every day, the brokenness of the world that we live in. And Psalm 27 can help us to see what it looks like to live a life of faithfulness and steadfast hope, even when it feels like we're under attack. Even when brokenness is really near to us. One of the reasons that I love this psalm so much is that despite the circumstances that David was facing, and they're pretty bad. We're going to talk about it in a second, right? Like, I don't know if he's using poetic language or he's talking literally that there's an army coming, but either way, things are looking rough for David at this moment. But this, even despite the circumstances that he was facing, he offers us hope that even in the worst scenario we can imagine, we can still find joy fulfillment, and hope in the Lord. Psalm 27 teaches us that our enjoyment of God as the ultimate good is not dependent on our circumstances. The Lord is our only refuge and unfailing friend when we come under attack. And as we walk through the psalm together today, I, I just want to ask three kind of diagnostic questions to see if we have learned and embraced what David's talking about. If we've learned and embraced what it means to look, to live life this way. So David begins um, in verses one through three with a rousing and clear declaration. Right? He just starts by declaring something that he knows to be true. And that leads us to the first question, right? What is your declaration? Notice that David does not begin with how big his problem is. Verse 4 comes in verse 4, not in verse 1. 
He does not start with his own ability to endure. He doesn't open by examining the foe that he's facing, whatever this army is. He doesn't start by trying to use clever logic to figure out a way out of his problem. Instead, he begins by declaring the truth of how big his God is. He starts with who God is, and then he works toward his problem. Right? That is the controlling reality that David uses to understand his problem and seek a proper solution. His very first word, which is two words in your Bible, is the Lord. But that's actually probably translated all caps in your Bible, which means that that word in Hebrew is actually Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. That's the first word. David's facing an army. The first thing that he says is the Lord. In other words, David begins by looking to God, by looking to Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Exodus 3, right? And there's a whole, we could go off on that, what that name means, but he starts with who God is. And when you consider the hardship that you might be facing today, or you will face in the future, where do you begin? Do you begin by considering the size of your problem or the, by considering the sovereignty of your God? Do you begin by formulating your clever plan or seeking his loving presence? This was David's declaration in the midst of the battle he was facing. Really, like, that's where you're going to start? I'm not afraid because God is big. In other words, that's where he starts. And then he tells us his problem. And so we can divide this into two parts. First of all, David makes plain that God is our refuge. God is our refuge. In verse one, David uses three words to describe God. One of them is a pair of words that he puts together, and that is light and salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Right, so the image of light can portray a few different things in the Bible. It's used kind of in different ways. Sometimes it means knowledge. Sometimes it means moral purity. Sometimes it, it's talking just about God's glory. The display of his glory is the light. But here, light is paired with the term salvation, which means that we should understand those two words together. So the Lord is salvation in the sense that his presence provides both guidance and protection to his people, right? Just think about the pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus. I think that might be the image that David has in mind here, that God is light, right? He guides us and protects us. Light drives away the fear of darkness. He also uses the term stronghold. Could be translated probably a lot of different ways if you're reading in a different translation. But it's really a broad term. So it doesn't mean like necessarily a fortress. It, it simply means a place of safety or protection. So it could be a fortress. It's basically anywhere that you feel safe from attack. The Lord is his stronghold. The Lord's presence then provides a sense of security, even in the midst of imminent danger. And then in verses two and three, David explains what that means for him and his current predicament. Right? He describes the situation in the worst possible terms. Now, 
I mean, like, these, this is pretty graphic terms, actually, if you think about it. That evildoers are coming against him, and they're violent, and they're flesh-hungry. Is he being literal? Like, do they actually want to eat his flesh? I don't know, but whatever he means by that, they're obviously a fierce opponent, and they do not wish him well, right? This is not just like a, a light criticism we're talking about here. This is like the worst possible attack you can imagine. An army encamps around him. They bring him under siege. You can just, just picture this, right? Like David is sitting at his desk, let's say, and he looks up out the window and, oh, look, there's an army marching against me. And he's all alone. And they're coming for him. Yeah, even in the midst of this, which is probably like the worst scenario I could imagine, even in the midst of this, David's declaration is clear. I will still be confident. Confident in what, David? Well, it can't be his own strength. Like, what, who's David? One guy? Yeah, he took on Goliath, but is he going to take on a whole army now? No, he's, he's not confident in himself. Because even... Defeating Goliath wasn't in his own strength. No, he's confident in the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who is his refuge in the midst of the storm. Man, I, I wish I had faith like that. That even in the worst scenario, I'm going to say, yeah, but God is really big. So uh, not long after the New Testament was, was written, uh, the, the church was growing pretty rapidly. And things were not necessarily good for them, right? Like society, Roman society wasn't sold on the whole Christian thing. Christians were, were pretty much rejected because they refused to participate in sacrifices and holidays and festivals to pagan gods and all of these things that Romans did. And so it was common at this time for Christians to be persecuted physically, like brought under trial and put to death, right? And kind of came in waves. But there's a guy, a guy named Polycarp. There's a baby name for you if you're looking for one, Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was, he was actually a, a, a disciple of the Apostle John. So he's very early, like right after the New Testament. Um, and he becomes kind of like a, a, a leader in the church, becomes a pastor of a prominent church in a prominent city. And so he's like a well-known figure. And the Roman government kind of starts to turn up the heat on the church a little bit. Persecution is coming. By the time it, it reaches him and, and his city, he, uh, he's an old man at this point. So he's kind of like reaching retirement age, you might say. And um, so, so they're pursuing him. He knows kind of like they're coming for me next because he's a well-known guy. He's, he's got a lot of influence in the, in the church. And so he knows they're going to come for me eventually. At one point he flees the city because he knows that he's next on the list. Um, and he hides out and he even tells his friends that he was staying with at the time. He said, I will be burned alive. In other words, knowing I can run but eventually, I know how the story is going to end. And so he decides he's going to return and kind of face the reality of things. And there comes a night where 
it's time, right? They're, they're gonna come after him. They get a band of soldiers together. They, they march against, it's almost like when Jesus was being arrested, they march against him like he's gonna like have an army or something. But he's just this old preacher guy. Like <laughs> he's not gonna put up a fight, you know, but still they treat him like a hardened criminal. Like they bring in the SWAT team basically to arrest this guy. And he, he hears word that they're coming. They're on their way. And he says, you know what? I'm just gonna stick it out. It's only a matter of time anyway. And so they show up at his door and he comes down and he meets them kind of casually. And all of the soldiers are, are completely su- surprised by this. Like, he's not going to try to run. He's not going to try to do anything. Like, he actually greets them. He welcomes them. He's, and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to go with you. Like, I'm not going to put up a fight or anything. Um, but can I just have an hour to pray? And they're so, like, taken aback by his reaction that they're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. You can pray. So he has dinner made for them. Like he's feeding the guys who are about to arrest him and take him to be uh, executed. Uh, And so he goes up and prays. He actually prays for two hours because he was just so passionate um, in his prayer to the Lord. And the next day they bring him in. They put him on trial in this big arena, right? Like you can imagine them taking him into the Barclays Center and like all these people are watching. They're gonna bring him out. They're gonna have this trial and they're gonna ask him to make sacrifices to the Roman gods. In other words, gonna ask him to renounce Jesus. Now, obviously he's not gonna do it. But what's so interesting is he's standing here. There's this council looking down on him. He knows what's coming next. At one point they actually say, I've got, a, I've got some wild animals, maybe like a lion that I'm going to bring out if you don't do it. And he's like, whatever, dude. It's in the lion. And so he's like, all right, then I'm going to burn you at the stake if you're not scared of the animal. He's like, whatever, dude. And they're like, they're, they're, they're actually pleading with him at this point. Please, just, just do it. We want to let you go. And it's so interesting what he says to them. Because they did. They did end up executing him there, which is a whole other story. But his response to them was this. 86 years I've served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior now? In other words, he never abandoned me. I'm not going to abandon him now. You see, standing strong in the midst of suffering, of the suffering that life brings It's not about minimizing the pain of our problems. It's about maximizing the goodness of our God. Whatever you might be going through, I don't want you to hear me say, it's not that big of a deal. It could be worse, right? Like, it's not that bad. People have it worse than you, so just get over it, right? No. That is not the message of the Bible. Your situation might very well be that bad. But you should also know that God is this good. He is this good. He's worth losing everything for, if that's what it takes. And so this week, I want to just give you a project. And I know how much you love the weekly assignments that you get. But I've got another one for you this week. I just want to give you an assignment. When you have some time, maybe a half an hour or an hour, 
just sit down with the pull up the notes app on your phone, grab a piece of paper and a pen if you're really old school, you want to do it that way. And just write at the top of the page, God is. God is. And then below that, just make a bullet point list of everything that God says that he is. With scripture references, right? Don't just wing it. Like have some, have some scripture to back you. But just make a list. So, for example, you might say, God is light and salvation. Psalm 27.1. God is creator. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. God is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14.6. And just as many as you can find. There might even be, some Bibles have like a thing at the back that might even help you. <laughs> but... Maybe, maybe at the end of that hour, you'll have two. Maybe you'll have a hundred. Right? The Bible is full of God telling us who he is. But I promise you, how, whether you have two or a hundred, if, if you do that, I think you will walk away encouraged by how big God is. I think you'll walk away realizing that we so often forget just who we're dealing with when we encounter the living God. And I think it will help you understand a little bit more why David could write these words with such confidence in the midst of his terrible situation. It wasn't because things weren't that bad. It was because God was that good. So from here, David moves into the second part of the psalm. This is in verses four through six. And here he tells us his greatest wish. David, what do you want in life? And that leads to the second question. What is your desire? What is your desire? Notice David's words in verse four. I've asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Right, in other words, David says, there's one thing I want. This is my greatest wish. If I could have anything in the world, this is what I would ask for. And what do you expect him to say? I would ask him, I would ask God to make all my problems disappear. I would ask God to make this issue go away. I would ask God for a new job, for a new house, for a new car. I'd ask God for X, Y, or Z thing. I would ask God to change my circumstances. In other words, that's not what David says. There's an army marching against him. David, what do you want most in the world? For the army to disappear, right? Like, that's what you would expect him to say. No, he says, I just want to be in the presence of God. Right? Usually, what I want most is a change in my circumstances. But what David asked for was just to experience God's presence. to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Why? Why is this his greatest desire? Because David knows something. David knows that our deliverance is not found in a change of circumstances. 
Our deliverance is not found in a change of circumstances. Our deliverance is found in knowing, loving, and enjoying this God. That's where we find life. The Lord, he says, will provide him refuge. And I think of Paul's words in Romans 8. We, we read these just a few weeks ago, right? To be in the presence of God is the solution to all our problems, right? It's our ultimate victory because why? Because he makes our problems disappear? No. But because as Paul says, even persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, even the worst circumstances, they do not have the power to separate us from him if we are in Christ. Praise God for that. Our problems can bring us immense suffering. They can destroy our bodies. They can take everything we have in this life from us, and they can kill us. But nothing, hear me, nothing can separate us from this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has chosen to relate himself to us in this way. That is good news. His presence is our deliverance. And I can find joy when I, when I think about the hardest moments of my life because those moments were often the things that drove me most into the arms of this God. The New Testament clearly talks about our suffering as a means that God is using to produce endurance in us, to cleanse sinfulness from us, and to purify our faith in him. And in your pain, God beckons you to come to him and find comfort in the safety of his loving hand. So I remember hearing the story of a missionary who was operating in a, in a city and in a country that was torn apart by civil war. And you can just imagine like, the way he described this was worse than anything I could even picture in my brain. People starving in the streets because they couldn't get food. People, I mean, they didn't have anywhere to bury people. There were so many bodies just lining the streets. Even on every corner, there are, are landmines from opposing clans that are fighting for territory in the city, and you don't know if, if the next step you're going to take is going to be your last one. I mean, it, it literally, like, is the image of hell on earth. And yet, in the midst of this, Right, so you can just picture that in your brain if you even can. And in the midst of desolation and devastation and ruin, in the middle of the city, there was this orphanage. And this is where this missionary kind of lived. It was like his home base. And it had walls on every side that were still intact, which is rare in the city at the time. Most buildings were kind of knocked down. And it was like... It was like an oasis in a dry and, and desert wasteland. I mean, children were like playing and laughing. You know, he describes how it had been days since he heard somebody laugh until he found his way into this little compound. And children were like 
playing and there was like water to drink and and when food could be found in the market they had food because money wasn't an issue they were receiving some funding and it was it was like a sanctuary a safe place and you could lay your head down at night with some measure of safety because it, it was like a a refuge and that's, this is the image that I think of when I read this psalm and the way that David describes the presence of God. It's like we're out there in that dry and desert land. We see the suffering and brokenness all around us. And God's presence is our refuge. It's our safe place in the midst of all of that chaos. So where do, where do we, for us, where do we experience the Lord's presence? For David, he's like, I got to go to the temple, right? Because that's where God dwelt in Jerusalem. But for us, we know that the new covenant means that the veil has been torn, that we don't have to go to a geographical location to experience the presence of God anymore, but we're invited in. And so what that means for us is that we experience God's presence when we commune with him personally. Right? So we have God's word. That's the way that God speaks to us through the enabling power of the spirit that we can read and understand it. And we have prayer. We're invited to come to God and talk to him. And so these two things represent our communion with God, his presence in our lives. And secondly, we experience God's presence when we gather together corporately so in speaking to the church at Ephesus, Paul described the church as God's temple and each member, that means you and me, are the bricks that God is using to build his temple. Right? He uses that image. And so we experience God's presence in life with each other as the church. He says, in Christ, you, that's in the plural you, you, you people, you guys, right? If we were in the South, for our Southern friends, you would say, y'all, right? You are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. To, thus, we, we together as the church represent the place of God's dwelling, since each of us have the Spirit in us, if we're believers, right? So, how important are these two elements in your life? I mean, if I were to take a poll and say, what's your number one wish in life? I would guess, if you're like me, I'll, I'll just say what I would say. It wouldn't be, I want to read the Bible more and pray more and go to church more. That's all I want. But that's what David said. That's what David said. He's, he's like, that's my number one desire. I just want to be in the presence of the Lord. I want to experience his presence. Often when life gets hard... It, isn't, it, isn't it funny that often when life gets hard, it's those three things that are the first things to go, right? When, when trouble comes our way, we stop reading our Bible, we stop praying, and we stop going to church. When those are the three things that we should most lean into in the day of adversity, they ought to be the first place that we run because only God's presence offers us refuge in the midst of the storm. We can find temporary solutions in the world, but the only permanent safety is in the presence of this God. 
So then in verse seven, David turns his eyes upward. Right? He, he kind of, it's, it's, it's a little bit random, isn't it? Like he's talking to us. Like he's talking to his audience. And then all of a sudden he just like starts praying. He just starts talking to God. And this is pretty unusual actually. And it jumps out at us. He says, he says, I'll sing and make music to the Lord. He's telling us what he's going to do. And then he's like, Lord, hear my voice when I call. And we're like, wait a second. Whoa, I thought you were talking to me. He starts praying to God and he's asking for favor in the midst of this thing that he's going through. He sees the army coming. And he just starts praying to God. And this leads us to the third question. Where is your dependence? Where is your dependence? In these verses, David makes two requests to God and one statement about God. So that's how I want to walk through this quickly together. Two requests to God and one statement about God. First, he asks, Lord, hear me. Lord, hear me. He, he simply wants to know that the Lord knows his suffering and that he cares. Hear my voice, God. Do you, do you hear me? Are you listening? God, are you there? Are you, are you listening to me? Man, hardship isolates us, doesn't it? When life gets hard, we, we feel alone. We feel unknown. We feel unheard. We feel misunderstood. And even people who have walked through similar things to what we might be going through, even they fully can't comprehend all the emotions that we're feeling, right? Because they're not you. And so David is simply seeking an audience with God here. It's as if he's asking God, do you, do you still see me? Do you know? Do you care, God? God, I'm still here. That army's still coming. Did you forget? And you've probably, if, if I'm guessing, if you're like me, you've probably felt this way more times than you care to admit. We know, factually, in our brains, we know that God is all-knowing and sovereign. We know that. But our perception in the midst of pain can make us wonder if he's abandoned us, if he's left us to fend for ourselves. Maybe he's angry. Sometimes we just don't know where he is or what he's doing. But David will not allow himself to make an accusation of God. He won't accuse God of wrongdoing. He's determined because he says, Lord, I will seek your face. I will keep seeking after you. In other words, I will continue to pray. I will continue to worship you. I will continue to walk in the way that you have said, even if I don't fully understand everything you're doing right now. Even if I'm not even sure that you're still listening right now, I'm still going to I'm still going to follow. I'm still going to trust you in this moment. Even if I cannot see your hand, I will still trust your heart. Then he prays in verses 11 and 12. Lord, lead me. Right? Facing opposition in our life presents many temptations, doesn't it? Probably more than we realize. We can be tempted to be angry in an unrighteous way. We can be tempted to become bitter toward God, the things of God. We can become lazy or complacent in our spiritual life. We can become self-centered as we see nothing but our struggle. We can become dishonest. 
We can comp make compromises as we seek to fix our problems. There are all kinds of ways we can go astray when we face hardship. And that's why David asked God that God would show him his way, that he would lead him on a level path. He's asking that God would not lead him into the hands of his enemies, that, that he wants to walk in righteousness still. He wants to walk in wisdom. He wants to navigate things rightly. He does not want to use his situation as an excuse to sin against God. But perched in the middle of this, right, in, in the middle of these two requests, is perhaps the, the sweetest declaration that David makes in the entire psalm. I love this verse. I love this verse. This verse has meant so much to my wife and I as we've walked through hard situations in our life and in ministry and feeling alone. This verse offers encouragement. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Did you hear it? Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. What's, what's David saying, right? So there's no evidence to suggest that his parents ever did abandon him or like leave him alone. In fact, at this point, maybe his parents weren't even alive anymore. We don't know. But David's posing a hypothetical situation. It's like, even if they did, let's just say my parents abandoned me. I know the Lord will still care for me. He won't abandon me. The Lord will never abandon him. Just ponder this for a moment. There are people in our lives who have God-given responsibilities to remain beside us, to care for us, to help us. The best example of that are our parents, right? Like it's their job to, to offer us guidance, to be there for us. There, but, but we can extend this beyond that, right? This, this would include spouses and siblings and friends and mentors and coworkers and all of these people in your life that are supposed to be there. They're supposed to be there for you. But we know that often people don't fulfill their responsibilities to care for us. We know that. It's a reality of life. They, they do abandon us sometimes. They forget about us. They leave us behind. They move on to bigger and better things. And I know that every person in this room knows something of that. You felt that before. Some of us more acutely than others, but we all know that feeling. And that's what makes the truth of verse 10 so powerful. Even if they do, even if that loved one never returns, that family member never reconciles, that friend never calls, that job doesn't work out, that, that coworker fails you or, or rats you out or leaves you out to dry, even if people fail us, and they will, 
the Lord will never abandon you. The Lord will never fail you. The Lord will never not come through. And that's what makes this verse so beautiful. And I would just encourage you, like, you should memorize this verse. I think it will offer you in that moment when you need it. Sometimes that's just the, the right word, right? Like, that God, he's, he hasn't forgotten. He knows, he sees, and he's still there. So where is your dependence? You know, we've been trained to think that we have to figure everything out on our own. It's kind of the American way, isn't it? Like, it's your problem, deal with it, right? Like, it's your bed, now you got to sleep in it, right? Like, there are all of those sayings, right? Like, we're, we're trained to think this. We're told something like, no one's going to be there to help you. You've got to figure this out by yourself. Face your problems. Get over it. Grow up. That's life, right? And there may come a moment in our lives when everyone has gone away. But there is still one who will always be there. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He doesn't say, just figure it out on your own. Aren't you an adult? Can't you do it by yourself? No. He will be there. Even if it seems like you can't hear him, he's still there. And dependence on God, it looks like what we just said. Making an effort to be in his presence every day, every chance we get. Because he is our only unfailing friend. He is our only refuge when the storms of life come our way. He is the anchor. And now I'm going to move to a conclusion, right? So verses 13 and 14, they provide the perfect conclusion to this psalm. Because David closes by restating his certainty in the goodness of God. And notice what he says. It still shocks me every time I read it. He says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. In other words, I know that I don't have to wait until death to, to taste and see that God is good. I mean, yeah, that's whenever we get perfection. But God is not withholding his goodness from us now because we live in a broken world. No, God wants us to taste and see that he is good, that he is the giver of good gifts, even while we're alive and living in a broken world. So the question then is, you know, David tells us in verse 14, wait for the Lord. That's his application. Wait for the Lord. Are we willing to wait? Perhaps you're wondering, when is good going to come? When am I going to see goodness from this? Doesn't seem good right now. Like, I'm not seeing a lot of good. I'm seeing a lot of bad. When am I going to see goodness? And I can't promise you that all of the reasons 
for why you might be going through something are going to be clear one day. God doesn't promise us that he's going to explain everything. But we do hold on to the promise that God is working everything for our good. We hold on to the firm belief that we will taste and see God's goodness, even in the midst of pain. Notice that this psalm has an optimistic ending. He ends on a, on a good note, on an encouraging note, but it doesn't have any resolution to the problem. He doesn't say, and now the army's gone. Now I know that they're not going to attack me. That's not how it ends. We don't have any, we don't know how the story ends. He leaves us on a cliffhanger. The army's still there, but it doesn't matter to the truth that he's trying to convey. Because David wasn't trying to solve all his problems. He, instead, he walks away being firm in his resolve, trusting that the God who controls everything knows what he's doing, and that this same God knows him personally, loves him deeply, and longs to see him grow to produce fruit abundantly, and he walks away with a sure confidence in this God. He walks away willing to wait, trusting that the Lord will make good on his promises. That even if the worst comes, God will make his goodness known. So I don't know. I don't know what all anyone in this room or what all anyone listening somewhere else might be walking through today. That situation is probably harder than I can imagine. That situation is, that weight is probably heavier than I know. But David's words in Psalm 27 make me sure of this. No matter what that is, if you'll offer God your confidence and obedience, if you'll wait for him, like David says, you'll walk out of that knowing him more intimately, loving him more deeply, and seeing his goodness more clearly. That's the hope that Psalm 27 gives us. And I want to close with this because we've said a lot of good things. Well, you, you can be the judge of that. Said a lot of hopefully encouraging things from Psalm 27. But the question remains, what about Jesus? All right, so I know this is written in the Old Testament, but where does Jesus fit into Psalm 27? Right, so if you walked out of here right now, you would probably think, okay, I need to trust the Lord more. I need to desire him more. I need to depend on him more fully. And all that's good stuff. True. But we should remember that only Christ has ever truly and perfectly embodied the message of Psalm 27. When I read this Psalm, I cannot help but think about Jesus. Because he alone has modeled faithfulness in the face of his enemies. Just think about what he endured. He alone can empower us to rest in the Lord while we remain under attack. Jesus had an army deployed against him, literally. But he did not tremble in fear. He was zealous for the presence of God beyond that of any other person who has ever lived. And even in his final moments, Jesus pled with the Father that he might be vindicated before his enemies. He was forsaken by everyone that was with him. He was all alone when he went to that cross. And when false witnesses rose up against him, 
He didn't bow and he didn't flee. Christ went to his death, knowing that the God who holds all of life in his hands could be trusted even when his plan brings us through hardship. And in the end, he was lifted up. He was highly exalted above all of his enemies. He was given a name that's above every name. Death could not hold him. And by his resurrection, the goodness of God burst forth from that tomb into the land of the living. Jesus is the goodness of God in this life. And we can look to Jesus, beholding him in all his resurrected splendor, the one who stands in our place before God. And we can be sure that we do not wait for the Lord in vain, even in the midst of the worst kind of suffering. Justice will reign. He will return and all will be made right again. We will be resurrected like him, to eternal joy in his presence forever. And even a sin-stained world full of so many hard things has not restrained the magnificent display of God's goodness to us in Christ. So look to Jesus, the one who embodies the truth of this psalm, the Lord is our only refuge and unfailing friend when we come under attack. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.